0: Tonight, we are going to begin with uh, Sutra 2, Four, Second Second book, Fourth Sutra. Now, does anyone have any questions, however, left over from last week? Yes, Heidi. Um, you, said, okay. you have to speak into the microphone so it comes out on the recording. Got it? And you have to hold it relatively close. Is that? Oh, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last week you were... I I thought I heard you say that if we are, um, it's when you were talking about, well, anyways, if we are afraid of our karma, it will come back to us. So if you could just say more about that. Um, Fear is, okay. Well, the phrase you used, if we're afraid of our karma, it'll come back to us. I'm going to rephrase it so it's easier to answer. If we're afraid of something, that creates the necessity to overcome that fear. And karma is unlearned lessons, which is something that has the capacity to draw our consciousness out of our central awareness of the divine. So if we fear something, whether it's we have fear of disappointment, fear of exposure, fear of whatever, fear of physical pain... Then sooner or later, that fear has to be overcome. Because in a universe in which there is only one reality, uh, the mere thought that there is something that can harm you in itself is the definition of ignorance. Um, Swami Kriyananda always, makes a huge, always made a huge point of going to the dentist without Novocaine, which was a terrible story that he would insist on telling us on a regular basis. Some of us would, you know, go in and go, ah, like that when he would do it, because it was such an awful story. I mean, we'd have to sit there like this, but no one enjoyed hearing it. Few enjoyed hearing it. And when I had to really think about it, I realized everybody fears physical pain. And by the grace of God, most of us do not have to face it on a continuous basis. So he was trying to express to us, take the opportunities when they come, to have the courage to face into things. I am like so far from that, in terms of the dentist. But I have just taken it in a small way. You know, when small things happen. You cut yourself, you stub your toe, you walk into the wall. You know, the things that happen to us. Just trying to train oneself not to react too much. Just because of that, anything you're afraid of is unlearned lessons, and means sooner or later you'll have to face it. So, it's a very important point. Yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? Oh, you got right up here with us. Good. Very good. No, you don't. (laughs) You look very cute, actually. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. So, I was saying uh, just before we started that I really like this book. I mean, Patanjali is... is, You can see why it's lasted so long. He's really, really really smart. You know, we... um, (laughs) I'm just being a little cheeky here. Um, the, the flow of his sutras are broken up by the commentary and broken up by the fact that this is class 27. Um, but when you see the sutras one after another, which we don't have a published version of the sutras, just one after another, after Swamiji retranslated the Gita and put out the commentary, then he also put out just the Gita without the commentary in the new version and it would be well worthwhile to either include it in the last pages of this book, which it could easily be done, or have another version where you can just read the sutras straight through because once you have more of an idea of what they mean, they all go together, which is why we keep referencing back. So, sutra number two, four, he says, ignorance is the field on which all imperfections thrive, whether dormant, superficial, sporadic, or sustained. I'm so just... Fascinated by how exact his thinking is. And he's referring back here to Sutra 2.3, in which he says there are five obstacles. This was last week. Ignorance, egoism, attachment, aversion, and clinging to bodily life. And so now the next sutras repeat um, those four and elucidate further on them. So he also, ignorance is the field in which imperfections thrive Even that very, it's a very interesting way to put it, isn't it? It's like imperfections can only thrive if we create the environment in which they will thrive. And that environment is for us not to understand our true nature. And as long as we don't understand our true nature, we remain confused. Um, He's also implying here without really expressing it completely, well, it does, it comes in a little bit later in this same set of sutras we're going to be dealing with tonight. That all problems can be solved by dissolving ignorance. And this is a very important point for the devotee because especially in our society now, people give us all kinds of other ways to solve problems. You know, you ease things by distracting yourself. Um, You ease things by just letting enough time pass. You ease things by standing up and asserting your rights making sure that everybody understands that you have a position too, all these different things. But he says it all starts on the field of ignorance because only on the field of ignorance can these imperfections thrive. And so if we work constantly to remind ourselves of our true reality, you know, through our regular meditation, through our devotion, through our, above all, through our very intimate relationship with God, so that we, we always remember that we're not really separate. And and whenever any um, ab, uh, ripple comes, something that disturbs the calm of our mind, Heidi was asking the question about fear and where does that play a part, anything that can disturb us. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not immune to being a little anxious when I go to the dentist, since we were talking about the dentist, you know. What might he find, and what will the consequences be? Just that little bit of concern about what's about to happen. Um, it's, it's very uh, powerful. Shanti mentioned that uh, when Jyotish, as you all know, he recently, last summer, Jyotish had a, a bout of, of cancer that he had to go through. He's Swamiji's successor and leading Ananda. And he talked about that it, it took him a few minutes when he realized that that was the diagnosis to just realize that, oh, this is what was going to happen in his life. Now, and then after that, it was just what was going to happen. Just to be able to, ignorance, it requires ignorance. I mean, could this be happening outside of the will of God? That's always the question. I've shared with you many times, uh, many years ago, I was in a particularly upset emotional state because of circumstances involving others that were completely beyond my control. I was just very emotional about it because everybody else was suffering and I couldn't seem to do anything to alleviate it. And then the thought came into my mind, could this be happening outside the will of God? It's it's a global question to whatever ails us. And if we can train ourselves by constant practice to realize that everything is the will of God, and if it's the will of God, why would I resist it? Um, There's a a wonderful story told by Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand is a a, a minister of a relatively um, fundamental Christian denomination. I don't remember which one. He was imprisoned... um, He was a Jew who converted to Christianity, a Romanian. And so first he was imprisoned by the Nazis for being a Jew, because he's of that generation... And then he was imprisoned by the communists for being a a Christian. So he had a a lot of physical suffering to go through in this life. He emerged from it all a free soul. Um, His books are really thrilling. the, the The first book is called Tortured for Christ, which is not exactly a title that causes you to eagerly pick up the book, but it's really well worth reading. We met him. He came to speak at Ananda. He came to speak in Grass Valley when, when, when Swamiji was there and we were all living at Ananda. And because we all knew and admired him so much, Swamiji too, we went to see him. And he was being hosted by a, a church there that was of whatever group he's with. And he he spoke in this very... They had this very peculiar architecture where they had their sanctuary on one side and their fellowship hall on the other and the um, altar area... Had an open window so you could stand on that raised platform and either speak and speak to either room, just depending which way you were facing. There were so many Ananda people that we overfilled their sanctuary and they put us all on the other side. So he actually would, he spoke like this and then he would speak like this in his place. And it was absolutely wonderful. On this side, he gave very orthodox Christian teaching, and on this side, he gave this very elevated principles of (laughs) self-realization. And he just would go back and forth like that, deeply inspiring. Swamiji was, you know, we were all thrilled to meet him. He was a really great man. And it was fascinating, this part of it. There was another man who also spoke, who had been through similar experiences. And Richard Rembrandt was tall and, and powerful, even though you could see his body was badly used. Um... And his voice was powerful and he laughed and was so lighthearted. And then there was another man who'd been through the same experiences, who was small and shrunken and his heart was pulled in, he was protected like this, his voice was small, he rarely smiled. Same experiences. But the point I wanna make is there's a a story that Richard Wormbrand tells where the guards were sadistic. And he wasn't merely imprisoned. He was also tortured in a variety of, of diabolical ways. And one of the ones that they, they, they forced him, I don't know how these things work, they forced him to walk around his small cell. And, you know, he was, he was barely fed and never exercised and it was no small effort. But they forced him to walk and walk and walk and walk and walk for hours. You know, these are... These are very fear-inducing things. And he said at first there was this awareness on his part that he was being made to do this by the guards. And so there was not only the effort to keep his body moving, lest whatever the consequences for him would have been, but there was also that element of... Well, I guess the word would be that he was a victim of their power but then as he began to try to work his way through what was happening, the obvious question, could this be happening outside the will of God? Is it possible that, that that Christ is not willing this for me? And then he began to realize that if Christ is willing this for me, why would I do anything but embrace it with my whole heart, mind, and spirit? And the more he thought like that, the more not only energy and and uh, physical freedom, he felt, but it just became more and more and more joyful. And it was as if it didn't matter, you know, that they were watching him and making him do this. It was entirely and completely freely chosen. Because if this is the will of God, why would I not embrace it? And it's very easy to say when we sit comfortably in this room. It's much more difficult to imagine, but now is the time to train ourselves in these thoughts. And it's astonishing how in our hour of need it'll be given back to us. So this is Patanjali's simple statement. Ignorance is the field on which all imperfections thrive. Imperfections meaning imperfections in our perception of our true nature. So... Then he talks about um, there are dormant imperfections. This is so, like, um, humbling. There are dormant imperfections, which are just latent and don't even have a chance in this incarnation to come out. They just wait there until circumstances allow them to be better, which is to say, how, how do we know how advanced we are? How do we know how much karma we have left? How do we know what other people where other people stand spiritually. I mean, there can be a whole host of qualities in there that it's just not the right day for them. You know, you can't do it as an American man or an American woman, or you have to wait until you're born in Ethiopia or something like that. Who knows? Or on another planet entirely. And then he says there are superficial imperfections, not serious impediments. And he gives us that wonderful example of him saying to Master, help me to overcome my attachment to good food, and Master just brushing that off. I mean, a person, it it also was a specific answer to Swamiji. For some people, gluttony could be a far more serious issue. But for Swamiji, it was just something superficial. He, He freely said, I used to cook for him years ago, and he finally just said, I'm a picky eater. <laughs> just like that. I admit it. I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> and he was exactly. There was... He liked certain things. He didn't like certain things. He just... He was that way. But it was also Master given him the freedom to say, it doesn't matter. This is superficial. It's very important for us to understand that because otherwise we waste... Um, we waste energy on things that don't really matter. And this is part of the, um, part of the gift of Swamiji's example of discipleship and the Ananda life he's given us, because he's given us a life in which we are allowed to be very natural, you know, that it's not required of us that we assume a demeanor and a way of living that uh, would not be our spontaneous way of living. I was listening just now to a very old recording, in which Swamiji talks about the goals of the Ananda community, and he was talking about the balance between imagining that we can make a perfect world, and being much too careless or lazy in the physical plane. And he, he took up the question of how we dress, and he talked about the first time he met Rajasee, Swami Kriyananda, when he met Rajasee as a young disciple he showed up in a torn T-shirt. And Master said to him, why are you dressed like that? And Swamiji talked about Ananda Moima who was in India, of course, where people are often very poor. And still, she said, you can be clean and tidy. There's no reason why you shouldn't be. And he went on at some length because at that time in Ananda's history we needed to hear that. And he particularly praised a woman named Saraswati, who even in the midst of everything, was always elegantly and beautifully attired. Not luxuriously so, but just with conscious care. And he pointed out to us that it was a service to everyone who has to look at you. And he taught me that lesson, too, I've shared with some of you. I went on a holiday with him, a weekend with him to Carmel, and I specifically remember I had this batik skirt, this long sort of just, you know, full skirt. Uh, It was a brown batik, and then I had this sort of brown sweater I was pulling the sweater on over whatever blouse I had, and he just said, don't you have anything else? You know, it's just like, you know, I just, I looked like a potato sack without any harmony. And it was the same thing. It was like that, in other words, he allowed us to be natural. I mean, he didn't want us to be vain, but he allowed us to be natural in the way that we lived. And so these superficial things, if they are superficial... It was interesting because he treated everybody a little differently. You know, to some he encouraged to have more dignity in the way they dressed, and others he complimented them only when they were indifferent. <laughs> so it just depended on where you were. But he allowed us to make distinctions there. Um, oh, what I, There was a, a deeper thought I had to say on that. Um, you know, sometimes we imagine... Uh, this is interesting. This is a long train of thought, but it's worth, it's worth sharing. I just uh, published, printed a book in India called Ask Asha, which is a collection of the questions that I was asked over a couple of years. And it'll come out in America in June, I think. 2014 is when this is being done. Um, there was one question in there. And I, had to, I ended up having to edit that book a great deal. I thought I could just print what I'd already written, but it didn't work out that way. And there was one question from this man who'd written me. And it was sort of interesting, because I knew the person who'd written the letter, and I answered him more or less intuitively. In fact, I answered him intuitively. So when I was looking at it later, I saw that there was no logical bridge, because I had responded intuitively to what he'd asked me, but it wasn't clear in what I'd written. And he had told me that he had a great deal of difficulty. He keeps, he, the, the question is, I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. No matter how hard I try, I keep doing that. I said, there's no shortcut to spiritual life. And that was sort of an answer, but it it kept niggling at my mind. And finally, I wrote it out more clearly, and this was the issue. The shortcut he was seeking was, I'll just do it all right now. And I ended up writing to him, it's not really a lack of willpower, it's that you're trying to fight the wrong battles. You're trying to fight battles that are too big for you. And that comes out just a little bit later in a sutra that's just ahead of here. You have to fight winnable battles. And the shortcut he was looking for was, well, if we have to renounce you know, all pleasures, then I renounce everything. I live on nettles. I don't heat my house anymore. You know, I go barefoot. I don't comb my hair. And what happens when you push beyond your actual capability is that you boing back. And you never really make any progress because you're trying to skip all of those boring stages in between. And so part of the right strategy for the spiritual path is to realize that these superficial issues are not really the place to fight the battle. You know, just leave them alone and put your energy into what really matters. Because you can't do everything at once. You have to be efficient in this. Then he says sporadic imperfections, which is the desire to indulge ourselves in ways that really aren't wholesome, but it's not chronic. And then he says, if we can resist that, then uh, gradually they'll they'll vanish from our minds. Of course, to tell the difference takes a certain amount of discernment, but it's worth knowing. This is the answer to the question, how much discipline is enough discipline? And I think the sporadic temptations are the ones that we can fight the most. The superficial ones we don't have to worry about, but the sustained imperfections, as he he called them, the longing for a romantic partnership, for children, for a home, for wealth, all of those. He he, he says something so interesting. These obstacles can be removed by God or Guru's grace. I mean, God can take those away from you, but usually they have to be indulged until experience tells us that only God will fulfill us. This is Swami's comment that he made to me, which I've always remembered. We learn from having our desires frustrated, but we learn more from having them fulfilled. It's fascinating. It's very interesting to think about that. And it goes back to ignorance. And this is it also goes back to Master saying um, that in, sooner or later we experience every possible option, every possible thing that's available to a human being before we can be God-realized. And everything that we are no longer attracted to, it's because we have already experienced it. It's a mind-bending idea. But when you really think about it, you realize how true it is the things that we are no longer attracted to, I mean, but not at all, it's because it's transparent to us that what we really seek is not there. But then there are all these gray areas of things that we really do think that we have to have, that we really can't get along without. I have to have Novocaine at the dentist. There's no possibility that I can face that, and I don't know when I'm going to experience that I don't need it, Swamiji experienced that he doesn't need it. Swami didn't need, even need to be protected from physical pain. He talked about it was only a dream, but nonetheless he talked about when his, he was going to be burned at the stake. And he was just as calm as could be about being burned at the stake, even as the flames were beginning to sort of uh, rise up around him. Because there was nothing he knew. He, he'd experienced it. There was nothing to fear in it anymore. Now, here we're talking on the other side about desires for this or desires for that. Now, Patanjali and Swamiji are also telling us how to deal with these. Yes, maybe Guru's grace can take them away, but usually we have to live through the experience. And so it's necessary also to just be at peace with ourselves. Why do I think I would be different? There's no shortcut. You know, maybe God will remove it from me. And a very good prayer is which people have offered, especially on chronic issues like the desire for a romantic partner. Lord, either you need to remove this desire from me or you need to fulfill it because this in-between is really not working very well for me. However, sometimes he doesn't do either. And you just have to keep going until he does. There's just no way out of it. There is no shortcut. Wherever we find ourselves is exactly where we need to be and God is working with us in exactly the way he needs to. And Swami uses the word be a little more impersonal about all your experiences. And again, you have to practice when it's easier before something that is absolutely everything to you. Before you're challenged, you know, from ripped out from the heart, it's better to have a little more practice in knowing that things work out for the best and God is in charge. It doesn't mean it's easier we don't weep. But that's the way it is. Any thoughts or questions on any of this? Yes, Jill. Does that mean we can't realize God if we must have Novocaine? <laughs> <laughs> well, on a certain level, it does. It means that we must be able to have the courage to face whatever comes to us and not fear it. So we could do it once and then... Nova came to me, is a tough issue. <laughs> and Swamiji talked about it so often. I know. That's... Yeah, but to me, it, it, it like, I, as I began to realize it, it epitomizes all our fears. I mean, if you fear, think about it, if you fear anything, what is the basis of that? I am separate from reality. Reality can harm me when certain likes and dislikes to the most intense level. This is good, this is bad. Everything that is the opposite of truth is epitomized. I am this body. What happens to this body is of great significance to me. Um, I experience life through this body. So when this body is in pain, therefore I am in pain. But in fact, this is just my coat that I'm wearing. Master talked about, um, there was the example of when the uh, concrete wishing well fell on his foot. This huge heavy thing and it smashed up his foot. And he demonstrated for them, now I'll bring my consciousness down to the level of the body. And then his face was almost involuntarily contorted with pain. Now I will lift my consciousness above the level of the body. And he just walked on the foot as if there was nothing wrong, to, wrong with it. In other words, how we experience it is a choice, which is based on our capacity to control our consciousness. You have all these stories of great yogis who, you know, are being eaten up by mosquitoes or, you know, go months without eating or are indifferent to cold and heat. I mean, that is where we have to go eventually. That's the hardest thing of all. Well, like. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit on your side. Um, I've been working on it for a long time. As I said, I'm nowhere near Novocaine. I'm nowhere near anything. But I've just practiced being a little more stoic. I was always just as puny as I could possibly be about these things. The tiniest thing would send me into shrieks. And then I just thought, this is not a good way to be. And later on in this, Swami talks, he uses the word nibbling at the edges of things. So you nibble at the edges of things. And you prove to yourself that you you can endure this much. And you just have to grow into it, but I would call it a sustained imperfection. And yeah, I I have this I have had this um, I don't know what the exact word is this enormous interest in in incredible hardships, especially uh, uh, either cataclysmic or, or political, you know, imprisonment and so on, like that. I never can tell whether I'm dealing from the past or working for the future, but I, I partially experience it just by, I have, I don't do this so much anymore, just by really trying to look at these circumstances and projecting myself into them and simultaneously seeing how other people manage. Like Richard Wurmbrand, it's a very tough book to read, but he managed and he triumphed. So it tells you that the human spirit can you could. And many people do. So where does that leave us? It leaves me kind of clutching my pillow and wondering, you know, if this life will bring me such a thing. That's what I like to think. I like to think that it's in the past, not in the future, but that's a very convenient thought, isn't it? Mm -hmm. No, the fear is there. What can I say? You know that story in Autobiography of Yogi of the police pursuing and mistaking the sadhu for the murderer and cutting off his arm, and he didn't flinch. He didn't flinch when they cut off his arm because it was just, you know, it it would be like if this got knocked over. You know, you wouldn't feel it in the same way because your identification. But you see, the answer is, what are you identified with? That's where we become a little more impersonal, a little bigger. Swami talks about going back to the Novocaine First, he would distract himself by writing music or working out a philosophical idea. And if he wasn't able to take his mind away from the pain, he would put his mind on it. And he would focus on it and, and then sort of expand his reality beyond it. Or think, it's been a good life, I can suffer for a while. Now, uh, Marilyn... I was thinking that, even thinking that um, I need sleep, or... Most, that would be, yes. I mean, in theory, in, in principle, philosophically, all of those things are physical imperatives, and all physical imperatives can and will be overcome. Today, not likely. So or, we have to have common sense about our spiritual path. Yeah, or, or I can have too much work to do. That you can have too much, that you can allow yourself to feel stressed. Yes, that's definitely an imperfection. Mm -hmm. And that's an imperfection worth working on. That's a sporadic imperfection. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the one that should be worked on. I think the need for sleep is a sustained imperfection. And you just have to learn it slowly. Master talks in autobiography of a yogi of Sri Yukteswar keeping him up all night, or keeping him up so late, and then keeping him up all night. And after that, he never. Felt the need for sleep. He never felt fatigued. It's just telling us the story. Master would, uh, Srikateshwar would keep them talking all night and they would never catch up on their sleep, but they didn't need it. But such things can't be forced. You have to feel really inwardly guided if you're going to start following things like that. <coughs> you have to make sure you're not being fanatical, that you're really being inspired. That's, that's why, that's what I was trying to say at the beginning. That's why we're so fortunate to have Swamiji as an example and the Ananda lifestyle as the example. We don't have to stay up all night. We don't have to give up food and sleep. You know, we don't have to exist on black coffee and dry bread. We don't have to go around in sackcloths. We can just relax and work on devotion. I mean, I remember Swami... um, Kriyananda, sitting at the lunch table with Sant was Das, who was a well-known teacher, spiritual teacher. He's, he died num- a number of years ago. And they were talking about fanaticism and diet. And I just remember Swami just saying that that, in that context, <coughs> this age is simply too gross to purify your consciousness by purifying your diet. He said, in very high ages... When the, when the veil of materi- the material world is very, very thin, just a little bit of effort and you can get through it. But in this age, matter is so heavy that you, you know you can purify your diet like crazy, but it's not going to be enough to liberate your spirit. And then they both said, devotion, 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 and service. But service is an expression of devotion. That's how you get free in this lifetime. And so we have Swami Kriyananda showing us, you know, he was utterly devoted to his guru with his full heart, and he worked and he served. Because that's what it looks like. That's what early Dwapara self-realization looks like for disciples of Paramahansa Yogananda. And if we, if we veer too far away from that, um, we have to be really sure that we're actually being inspired and not just being confused. So, does that make sense? You know, this, it's it's, it's, it's no accident that we are where we are. We have to pay attention to where we are. Okay. So, moving right along. We're moving along to Sutra 2, 5. Ignorance, now he defines ignorance, which is, the, the field on which all imperfections thrive. Ignorance is the conviction that what is impermanent is permanent, that what is impure is pure, that what is painful is pleasant, and that what is the non-self, the ego, is the true self. He just, he's always just encapsulating, isn't it? That what is per- impermanent is permanent, what is impure is pure, that what is painful Is actually pleasurable. I love that one. (laughs) And that the non-self is the true self. This is the field of ignorance on which um, imperfections thrive. So he talks, he starts by talking about how everything around us disintegrates. People disintegrate, people die, things disintegrate, things die. And you have the beautiful flowers on your altar and then you look over there a couple of days later and they're kind of slimy and awful looking. You know, they were so beautiful for a while and they're just not. You kind of... <laughs> Somebody sent me some photographs from 10 and 20 years ago of myself and a few of my friends and I sent it to my friend. She said, Wow, we were good looking. <laughs> I said, Yeah, I mean, I'm astonished too. I certainly didn't think of us like that at all. But just like everything else, we've decayed. We're not exactly slimy, but we ain't we don't look like that anymore. And you're just standing there. I mean, you, 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 your infinite spirit is just standing there. And everything around you just gradually disintegrates. And the Swami Kriyananda's body was so old by the end. And of course, it didn't start that way. You have that picture in the Finding Happiness movie of him driving his bicycle at the age of seven. He was so energetic. One of my favorite pictures of him is... I don't know exactly how it came to me, but... He's with his mother, and he was probably three at the most. His mother was young and really lovely, and they had a very dear connection. His mother's sitting there; it was taken in Romania, and she was always very dignified. And she was just sitting there, and he, like a little child, he's standing next to her, but he's kind of sprawled across her lap like that. And it's just such a childlike sweetness, and the, the sweetness between the two of them is just so palpable and then he was 86. Everything decays, and yet we don't remember. Even sitting in the dentist chair, since we keep going back to that, that's also Swamiji's thought. Well, you know, even if I can't take my mind away from this, I can just endure it for a little while. When he dreamt that he was going to be burned alive, well, this will be painful, but it'll be over, and then it'll just be later." In one of my many, you know, How Do You Endure Impossible Circumstances books, I read a book about uh, a couple of journalists who were kidnapped in the Mideast somewhere and actually held for like five years, seven years, really long, long time. And they had been prepped a little bit for the possibility of this happening because of where they were and the work they were doing. And one of the techniques that was offered to them is while you're in captivity, write your autobiography from the perspective of after as a way of keeping your consciousness clear. Just in other words, project yourself into the time when this is over. Don't buy into the idea that this is reality forever. That everything is impermanent. Now that's slightly contradictory to just live in the now. But when you're living in the now, you also have a consciousness of the passage of time just being an illusion. It just goes on around you, past, present, and future, just like a parade that's always happening. Many, many years ago, speaking of Jotish again, I've shared with you uh, the fact that his dome, which again, in the Finding Happiness movie, they talk about how, it, at least after it burned down, they didn't have to struggle against the leaks because struggling against the way the rain came into that building was a very serious problem. And I came once during the torrential winter rain, a torrential winter rainstorm, which we used to have then. We used to have 60 inches of rain in six months. So it was a lot of rain. I mean, it's just not like that now. And he had rigged up this huge funnel. At the the highest point of his... It was a dome, because apparently most of the water came in through that central point... So he had rigged up this big funnel, I don't know where he even got such a thing, that he'd wired to the top of the dome and then put a piece of tubing in that ran out from that and then went into his sink. So most of the water that came in now ran into the funnel, ran through the tube and was pouring out the sink. The sound of the rain was very intense and the sound of many rushing waters in the middle of his house was also very strong. And I came in and it was a winter night and he was just sitting in a comfortable chair under a gaslight, just quietly reading a book. And I just looked at the whole thing. How can you stand this? I said to him, it was just to my mind, even though I was pretty simple living, it just was so crazy. He said, well, he said, I have this point of view that anything can be endured as long as it's temporary. And when you stop and think about it, everything is temporary. <laughs> it was just a perfect answer. Everything is temporary. So whatever it is, it's going to change. So ignorance is, imag- the conviction is the word he uses, that what is impermanent is permanent. Uh, just speaking of stress, it works since you mentioned that. I've trained myself over many years because I have been capable of becoming extremely stressed. By the feeling that I have too much to do, but I have noticed that it always gets done or it doesn't, but it always resolves in fact, just today, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about the leaving for India last uh, whenever I left, and how kind of very, very, very busy it got at the end as I was trying to tie up all the loose ends. I always think it 's going to be a smooth departure, and it 's always just action-packed and fun-filled, you know, just really tight. And I realized, whatever it was I was worried about, it all resolved. And I can think of every stress period in my life, and whatever it was I was worried about, it all resolved. Because it always does. Something always happens. And so we think that this stress and this anxiety is permanent, and that's the field of ignorance in which imperfection thrives that somehow something terrible is going to happen. Well, it either will or it won't. And there's just such a certain um, stress-reducing faith that if I've been given this to do, we'll just figure out a way to do it. There's a uh, uh, Vanmali Devi, uh, who's a great devotee of Krishna, uh, Indian woman in Rishikesh. She had the concept which I just loved. But she says whenever she feels she has too much to do and not enough time to do it, she turns all the clocks to the wall and she shifts into what she calls Krishna time. Because, of course, Krishna can just... You know, in the the Bhagavad Gita there's the story of when Arjuna had made a vow that if he didn't accomplish this certain thing, which is to kill these certain enemies before the sun went down, that he would take his own life. And... Things were conspiring for him not to be able to fulfill that vow. So there are several stories told. One is that Krishna sent a black cloud over the sun so everyone thought the sun had gone down and that gave Arjuna the chance to sneak in or that Krishna just held the sun in the sky to just give Krishna the extra time, he, Arjuna the extra time he needed. But Krishna time. The sun doesn't even rise and set in an orderly manner if Krishna's going to intervene. And I have, on more than one occasion, followed exactly that practice. I mean, when, once I remember it was before I was leaving for India. Um, I don't know exactly what the timings were. And I was responsible for the costumes for the school play. And in the evening, I was leaving early the next morning. That evening, I realized that if my helpers were going to get any work done while I was gone, I wanted them, that was the. The Haffes play, and I had idiotically decided that I would make these little white shirts for all these men, all the boys, and people were going to help me. But I knew I knew that if I gave them the, the the pattern and the fabric, they would never sew it. If I gave them it the fabric cut out and just that to sew together, there's this huge psychic barrier for seamstresses to cut a pattern, cut things out, and I knew it. I realized that the night before I left and I realized I needed to cut out all 40 or 70 or whatever, it was a lot of them. I needed to cut out every one and I needed to do it before I left. So I turned the clocks to the wall and I just started doing it. And I finished cutting it exactly the time I would have gotten up. I stayed up all night and I did it. But I stayed up all night perfectly happily. I was just perfectly content and I was certain... Every time I would feel the slightest bit bit anxious, I thought, you know, this will just spoil the experience. And I I listened to Swami read some book to me and just sewed all night with my clocks to the wall. And, you know, I saw it beginning to get light and I saw that I had two more to go and I looked at the clock right on the minute almost exactly. Yeah. Because it's what is, nothing is permanent, everything is mutable. We don't have to just get so anxious even our bodies, even suffering. It just comes and goes. Ignorance, the field on which imperfection thrives, is the conviction that what is impermanent is permanent. It's very, very... It's such a, isn't that a simple idea? How do we unravel ignorance? Such a simple idea. Whatever it is will end. One man was going through just unbelievably difficult karma. I mean, really, like one of those really astonishing how-can-so-many-things-go-wrong-at-the-same-time kind of karmas. And he just said to Swami, I mean, the essence of the question was, ah, like, what? Swami just said, all karma ends. That was all he could say. Whatever it is, sooner or later, it won't be here anymore. Because no condition in the material world is permanent. And if it's only going to, it's only temporary... It is very comforting. Well, remember, though I'm going to laugh, this is the opposite of that. When Swamiji said there was his fellow disciple, Norman, who was very inclined to be depressed and had these really heavy depressions, and he came into Swami's room at the ashram there, you know, collapsed on the bed in great sadness, and Swami tried to comfort him by saying, Well, Norman, you know, even if you're suffering now, how long can it last, 40, 50 years? (laughs) which caused Norman to run screaming from the room. But Swami thought that was really a helpful statement. You know, so you're depressed for the rest of your life. Like, big deal. You're the disciple of a great master. You'll get free. (laughs) I often think about that. How long can this last? 40, 50 years? But it'll pass. Everything passes. Let's take a, including the fact that we're now going to have a break. (laughs) Okay, let's have a little break we were just talking about this book, Love Perfected Life Divine. When I was in India, I made an audio book of it. And I, I just got it back, edited. Um, there are 24 characters in that book. I think I expressed this to all of you before, and I was reading it alone. The voices are a little less distinguishable than they felt to me. But it's a, it's a fantastic story. And my recording of it is very lively. It's a first-person account by a woman. And, of course, Swami's not here to read it himself, plus the eye, and it is female, so it had to be read by a female voice. There's something about that book that is... I don't know... know—it has. It's extremely meaningful to me, and I think it also has some kind of power in it. So there's a few little things in the audiobook that have to be shifted. The engineer didn't leave enough space between chapters, and often the shift in energy from one chapter to the next is really extreme, and there's just not enough space. It's very confusing. So it'll be maybe in a couple of weeks, but then I'll make it available somehow or through crystal clarity. But if you haven't gotten into that book, or even if you have, you might consider listening to it read. There's a lot of words in that book. (laughs) And somehow when they come across this conversation and this dialogue, even I, who have read the book multiple times, have been listening to it and Really enjoying it. I've only just started listening. But it's... Uh, anyway, so there it is. It's coming really up someday. What? The audio book? Yeah, it really did. Well, however it takes me to read the whole thing, listen to the whole thing, and then however long it takes the engineer to shift it. Because it's, it's it's almost just fine. He left... So far I've only... Well, I, haven't, I haven't listened to that much. But twice the word correction, repeat is in there. <laughs> but the main thing that's wrong is that the chapters run too fast. That's really jarring. You just don't have a chance to catch it. So, okay. Any other, any questions or thoughts about anything that we're talking about? Yes, jenna and um, I use uh, pain as an indicator that I'm off. Uh-huh. And so when I'm In pain, it's because I'm not seeing uh, devotion, love, oneness. Are you talking about physical pain or more emotional or mental? Emotional pain. Yeah, in fact, exactly true. I mean, our, well, it goes to the word pure now, yeah, our natural state is bliss. And anything other than bliss means that in one way or another we're not completely in tune with our deeper reality. Now we do have to understand this on multiple levels because he, someone like Swamiji or Master was very conscious simultaneously of his own freedom and of the, the lack of freedom and the suffering of others. So this is again where we have to look to the example of Swamiji to understand what this freedom really looks like. Because the, 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 the amateur devotee says, oh, well, you're supposed to be detached. Well, that man is hungry, but what difference does it make? Well, your feelings got hurt by what I said, but that's really your problem. You know, I just, that dog is in my way. Let him just, let me just push him out of my way. And they think that detachment is to be hard-hearted, to be unconscious of other people's reality. Because what actually happens to the devotees, you become more and more sensitive. I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed by how easily I can cry. I don't cry for myself like I used to. I used to cry for myself a lot. I don't cry for myself very often. But I cry really easily. Things just strike me. You know, the, the cheesiest kind of um, sentiment can just touch my heart. Or the just tiny little things that people do. There's, a, there's, such a, there's so much poignancy to life. And uh, uh, so much suffering. So it's a a multi-level thing because we need to also... um, We need to become increasingly conscious of other people's realities. The best way to overcome the ego is in loving service to others with sensitive awareness of their needs. So... But yes, anything that can really take away... Our, our connection to God is something, karma, that we have to resolve. But we can't, we can't be afraid of life. Swamiji, I, I've quoted this to you, but he was referring to someone who was um, aloof in their nature, and he, he, he said, you know, that person looks more detached than I am, speaking of himself. He said, but my, in fact, my detachment is much greater because his aloofness was a lack of commitment and a fear of involvement, which is fear of, lack of, rather than just a, a fearless capacity to just enter into any reality, because it's all God's will. What do I have to fear here? You know, I, I practice that. We all practice that, but I practice that sometimes when you see um, people on the street homeless people or strange people. You know, I practice really not protecting myself from their vibrations. not in, I don't want to be inappropriate, but just not protecting myself from their reality. Just to feel their reality, to look at their faces, to look at their, you know, stacked up carts, to watch them chatting with beings that only they can see. And just allow yourself to really accept that this is who they are, not feel the need to protect yourself from it and not have it um, disturb your peace. Even if it brings tears to your eyes, it doesn't necessarily disturb your peace. I remember this, uh, when we had our our center for those years on the second floor over here of the office building on California Avenue, one evening I came up and some man without a home, who, who was also mentally, obviously, totally confused, had found his way up there, and I had to persuade him that it was time for him to go somewhere else. And he had with him a lot of papers and pencils and things, and he was sitting there sort of scribbling, and he assured me that he would leave as soon as he finished his important work. And I was telling, because it really touched me, I told Swami about it later, and Swami just answered, well, he probably used to do important work. You know, but somehow he'd lost his mental balance, and he still was clinging to that reality. I still vividly remember this man. You know, it's just like, you can't help but cry. He was, he was, was tragic. But it's also part of God's leela, That which is, you, ignorance is to imagine that which is impermanent is permanent. This man is going through his life of being um, imbalanced. There you have it. He has something that he needs to work out by being imbalanced. What can we do? He has to go through it. Some things can be taken away by God's grace, and other has to be experienced. And what this man is experiencing is well, that didn't work. That's what Swamiji says. Insanity is it's an ult- the ultimate effort to go into to go unconscious. It's the same as wine. It's the it's the the three um, threefold delusion of wine, uh, wine, women, and money. Wine, sexuality, and money. Wine represents the belief that if I block out reality, then I'll feel better. And insanity is the ultimate blocking out of reality. You just make it up yourself. And it's, it's nothing really... You don't have to be delicate about it. It's just, well, look at that. He's making it up himself. Just making up his own world. He's just not in this one anymore. How's that working for you? You know, not so well. <laughs> but what is he getting to avoid doing? What fears are he escaping Yes, Nishkama. On um, experiencing um, obviously unfortunate souls, Mm -hmm. Um, a, a way that helps put it in perspective is to recall how Swami shared with us about how he looked at people in his later years especially, all kinds of different people, all kinds of different ways of life, some of whom were really suffering. Some were terribly deluded in the path they were taking. He would comfort himself by recognizing they're all on the same path, and they're all going to wind up here in satchitananda just like me, right. and uh, and they're going to feel real good about it. Yeah, when they get there, that I mean, ignorance is the conviction that what is impermanent is permanent. So all suffering is impermanent by definition. And so the more we can train ourselves to that, the freer we'll be. But I mean, if you can, if you can empathize with them and, and, and identify with them in that way, yeah. uh, to me, that, that is a, uh, can be a very great blessing in itself. That's the gift of consciousness. You know, the path of self-realization is not for sissies. You just have to accept that. We all have to accept it. Courage is the first requirement on the spiritual path. And you can see how that courage comes in so many different ways. When I was in India for some reason I had I had little themes that I sort of was hammering out day after day and one of them was just this thought that you know you really have to have the courage to see the implications of what we're studying here. You can't just kind of pick up this little piece and this is nice and this little piece is nice but not really recognize where this is going and what it means. And that's what was what sort of you know, that's my particular theme. It's like we have to have the courage to see where this is going and what it means. We all um, serve in whatever ways make sense to us. And this must have been something in many past lives where I took pieces of it and then pretended that the rest didn't apply. Because I have this real passion for this. Look, if this is true at all, it, me- it must be completely true. And if we're going to get anything from this, we've got to have the courage to just recognize it. And part of that courageous recognition is, well, this delusion of mine is a sustained imperfection <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to have to live through it and not be, not be afraid of that either. It's like, well, I'm just going to have to have this experience. We'll see where it goes. Could you give a specific example? Is that possible? Sure. Maybe someone who's trying to be a monk feels a sudden desire to get married. It's like they really feel they ought to be a monk, but, you know, they can't resist the temptation. Or, or, and then all of a sudden they find that they, you know, they're going to have to live through this whole karma. Maybe babies come along and they have to raise all these families, and they, this family, and they think back, why did I ever leave the monastery? You know, after all the hoo has all the excitement has died down, and you find yourself with a 20-year responsibility that completely precludes your being able to do anything else. You know, you get a child that demands everything of you, and there you are, one more incarnation. But you just live through the experience consciously, you make the best of it, you remember God through it, you turn it into a divine experience. And then the next time, uh, when you start out in the monastery, you're a little stronger. (laughs) Because something reminds you that, you know, the other path is not what it seems. Or, by contrast, somebody goes into a monastery out of fear of involvement and they end up just really bitter and shriveled and don't have any joy. And they realize that it was all... It was fear that was keeping them there. And they need to remember that. I have to have another experience. I, there was a woman that I... She was an acquaintance, but she was a good friend of a, a friend. She was a very large woman. And she was very large because she just loved to eat and she loved to eat everything that was bad for her. And she hated to exercise and she was quite enormous. And, and kind of grandly and gloriously, unashamedly so. I mean, some people are self-conscious. She was not the slightest bit self-conscious about her large body. And she, um, she wasn't actually into pornography. That was going a little farther than that. But she, was into, she ran a little store where she sold erotic things. Just things that would facilitate ever greater sensuality and intensity of sexual experience. That was her business. She was a big person. She was a very happy person. She was also a CPA. (laughs) She was a smart person. She was a smart woman. This is is all that she did. The little shop was kind of like on the side. And uh, she said that she, she had had a psychic reading or her own intuition. She had been an extremely judgmental nun for many, many lifetimes. And she just needed to get over it. So she was. She was just getting over it. Now, here's a, here's a funny story. Let me think how it was. Let me just think. How does this go? Oh, I can't quite remember. There's a, a joke related to that, but I can't remember the pieces, so I'll have to skip it. But anyway, but you, you never know. You never know exactly who what people are doing and why they're doing it. And you just keep having, to, you have to have all these experiences until you're free. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? So, let's go. Now he's talking about purity and impurity, which is very, a very interesting phrase. And he, and he describes it exactly as we need to understand it, which is the only absolutely pure thing is unmanifested spirit. He puts that out, that everything in creation in one way or another is a slight step away from unmanifested spirit. So he said, for practical purposes, we have to think about that which is pure is that which lives our consciousness toward the divine so anything that's god reminding we, can, we is is pure in our in our vocabulary for this purpose and that which is impure is that which takes us away and we make a mistake we can't tell you know what is what it's the same it's the same mistake we that which is impure we think of as pure meaning we think of it as good for us i mean nobody would eat food that is impure or drink water that's impure you wouldn't do it because you know it would poison you but we get confused and we we think and then it follows we think what is uh, painful is pleasant and it's painful to the soul it's painful to our ultimate bliss but we just don't know that we you know eat wrongly we speak wrongly he talks about how people like to be emotional and we don't think about that so much in the small world in which we live but some people are very keen on expressing their anger and letting their feelings out and, you know, having the right to be who they want to be and the right to indulge in this and the right to do that. And just the same thing. It's just the backwardsness. And, and all of us learn it. You know, we learn it slowly. We just gradually realize that that just didn't work for me. You I know, mean, in our culture, many people get divorced. Many people just ruin their relationships. And often they'll look back and think, What was I thinking? You know, I was angry all the time. I was always yelling about things. I was always demanding. This, you know, I get to speak up. And there's a lot of teaching about relationships, which is, that which is uh, actually painful is really perceived as being pleasant. I demand. And then they think that that which is actually going to bring success in their love relationships is actually unpleasant. Unpleasant. I mean, when people... I hear people say... I used to do a lot with relationships. I don't think about it as much anymore. But people say, you know, marriage is really hard work, success, and marriage is really hard work. I said, no, actually. I said, divorce is really hard. That's really, really hard. That's so much worse than anything it takes to make a relationship successful. You have no idea. But what people are saying is, I have to discipline myself. I have to deny my egoic inclinations in order to be in harmony with someone else. And we get confused. We think that which is pleasant is painful, and that which is painful is pleasant. That which is against our soul nature. I mean, food is the most fun one. Not that it's, it's somewhat superficial, but it's so amazing how we can think that something's good when it really isn't. If you have an allergy to something you really like, and you know it's going to make you feel terrible. But you have to go through that whole cycle of realizing, well, what do you know? How many times do I have to do this? Someone told me that it took him a year and a half to accept the fact that every time he ate wheat, he felt horrible. Even though every time he ate wheat, he felt horrible. (laughs) It was just like, maybe this time it's not going to be true. It's a small example. Or we lose our temper. Or we just say something mean. We try to... uh, Get rid of that which bothers us. Swamiji once said, you know, about me, he said, when something annoys you, you try to expunge it. That was the word he used. (laughs) You know, I just want to obliterate it out of my world. If it's another person, well, too bad. I mean, that was a long time ago, thank God. But nonetheless, I I just, a tendency, it's like this, bothers me, let it go away. Not realizing you send that kind of energy out, it's just going to come and eat you up later. You think it's pleasant, but it isn't. It's very, very painful. So we have to just always examine everything in the light of the soul. Swami wrote that little book, Sadhu Beware, which is a, a wonderful book for overcoming the ego. And it just kind of tells you, as he tells us here a little bit also, um, that it's just the opposite of what we think. The ego deludes us and tries to tell us that if you, if you stroke me and make me feel better, things will be better. So, um, the sutra number 2 6, he says, Egoism is the identification of that which sees with the power of seeing. And what I draw from this one, which is really very interesting, is you really have to live from your inner reality. That's what this is about. And he talks about the fact that we do live through our senses and we imagine that it's our eyes that enable us to see, not realizing that it's the presence of the divine within us that gives the power to the eyes, that everything emanates from the spiritual level. And he talks about how um, in the astral world, you know, we can see and hear and taste and touch without having a physical body at all. And that even in this world, when we are experiencing the world through our physical body, we need to always stay in touch with the fact that it's really the inner spirit that's moving and to realize that nothing would be possible if God weren't inwardly animating us. And and as Swamiji puts it, refer everything back to that inner reality. You see, that's how we discern between what is really pleasurable and what is really painful. This um, everybody praising me or everybody telling me that I'm terrible. You know, is this pleasurable? Is this painful? What is really happening inside of me? Is the ability even to hear this praise or blame, you know, where does it come from? And what am I really experiencing? This is just noise on the outside where the inner reality is the true reality. This is why in our practice of Kriya and our practice of meditation, we withdraw from the senses as, as much as we can And we try to experience the essence of what we're reaching for outwardly, completely without any um, material intercession. So that when, even when we step away from our meditation room and interact with this world, we still recognize that it's really within myself that these experiences are happening. And of course the value of that is one, that is the permanent reality, is my inner consciousness. And the second thing is that is the only thing I can master. I can't master this external world. But I can master how I experience it. And this sutra, just this little thing, we think that it's the eyes that enable us to see. No. It's the consciousness, the life, the divine life within us. That's what makes it all possible. And if we, the more. The more we find thousands and thousands of little ways in which we can turn even the most mundane experiences toward divinity, you know, it's these minutes that collectively actually make us into someone else, and then everyday life becomes sadhana. And when challenge and crisis comes, um, we've trained ourselves and our automatic responses. Um, take us in an entirely new direction. Does that make sense? It's a very subtle point and an interesting one. All right. Do we have any questions or thoughts? Because otherwise we may be done. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week.